Hello and welcome to the Adult Children's Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on Online Meetings, and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm happy to welcome our speaker, Pauline, from Santa Rosa, California. Hi, everybody. Okay, here I am. I live in Santa Rosa. It was over 100 degrees today, and um, I got the fan on, trying to stay cool. So I've been in ACA about three years. I'm an adult child. Um, I didn't, um, I wasn't born in California. I was born in Southern Illinois in a small town. And I knew there was something wrong with my dad, but we didn't have a name for what was wrong with my dad. Um, he was just a source of shame in the family. He was, um, the kind of alcoholic that would binge drink and he would drink until he passed out and he often would pass out on the street. So um, my mother would send the kids to retrieve him when he was passed out on the street. So I had three older brothers in the family. So their job was to go collect dad and drive the family car up to the ditch where he was laying drunk and put him in the car and bring him home and then drag him into the house and try to get him into bed. Uh, I, I wasn't involved in that, I was too little, but when my brothers left home, they uh, grew up and, and got married and left home and then it became my job. I was the youngest child of five and it became my job to take care of mom and dad. So um, yeah, and that was probably the hardest uh, part of my childhood was then when I had the sole responsibility for caring for mom and dad because the other kids had left. Um, so I was the lost child in the family. Um, my mother treated, re treated me really badly. I always thought what was wrong with me that my mother treated me so bad. I, I wasn't a problem child. I always thought I was really good. I tried to be really good. I tried to get my mother's love and approval, but my mother was overwhelmed with an alcoholic husband and five children. Um, the oldest was 10, and when I was born, the oldest child was 10, and so she had five kids under 10 and an alcoholic husband. Uh, you know, when I, when I stepped back and looked at the picture of my family, I thought, wow, no wonder she was overwhelmed. So... Um, yeah, she, she took a lot of her rage about my father's alcoholism. She took it out on me physically, emotionally, spiritually. I became like her whipping post. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the scapegoat in the family, but I was clearly the scapegoat, the most sensitive one. So all the violence and everything came tumbling down from the mother to the father to the boys to the youngest girl, which was me. So I spent a lot of my childhood in my closet, in my bedroom, <clears throat> in a cardboard box, trying to stay safe. And I remember thinking, my mom will come and get me. If I just stay in here, my mom will come and get me. <laughs> I spent a lot of time waiting for my mom to come and get me. I don't remember her coming to get me at all. I was kind of like the Cinderella in the family. It was my job to clean up, 
everything. And um, yeah, I was a little slave girl. I didn't know why my mother treated me so badly until I was an adult and I went home to visit my mother and she told me, um, she just casually said one day, um, you know, I tried to abort you <laughs> and I, I didn't say anything. I just took it in and um, she said, yeah, I tried to abort you, but I wasn't successful. And I said, how did you try? And she said, I slept on Sears catalogs. I don't know if any of you are old enough to know what a Sears catalog is, but um, used to order, order many things by uh, mail order. And the catalog was really thick. We always had a lot of Sears catalogs at, at our house because that's how my mother would you know, order things for Christmas for us. So she slept on the Sears catalog thinking she would abort me and I thought, I wonder what she really tried to do to abort me. I bet there's more she's not telling me. And you know, I don't remember thinking about that, but when I got back home, that was on a visit that I made back to visit her when I had left the state. When I got back home, I thought, well, that makes sense. That's why she treated me so bad. She didn't want me. So I asked her a little bit more about that. And she said, you know, I was... Your sister was a girl. I had three boys and then I had a girl and my family was done. I was not going to have any more kids. But, you know, your sister was about two months old and I found out I was pregnant with you. And my mother was a devout Catholic. You know, there was no other way to handle a baby. If you're a Catholic, you just have the baby and then you take your anger out on the baby, I guess. So um, that really helped me have compassion for my mom, even though the degree to which it affected me is, I still can't even quite conceive of what I must have felt like as a fetus. And my mother tried to abort me. Oh, that's just hard to think about. So, you know, my, uh, the other complication in my family, in addition to my father being an alcoholic, I had... Um, a brother and a sister that were born deaf. So they were disabled. And both of those kids had to go to a boarding school uh, to learn how to talk. And they got hearing aids fitted and they had to learn how to speak because they couldn't hear speech. And back in those days, uh, there was no sign language. They got spanked if they used their hands to talk. So they went to a very strict boarding school run by Catholic nuns with the black habits and um, they really had a strict regimen at school. And then they would come home every two weeks. So actually it was better with two of the kids gone. There was less chaos in the house, but then when they come home for the weekend, all hell would break loose again. But that was hard on my mother and father to send their kids away to a boarding school. Um, they didn't have the money to do that, but um, some charity donated the money so those kids could learn how to speak and, and um, hear with their hearing aids. And they both had very successful lives, you know, probably much more so than I did because um, I became the caretaker for my deaf sister. Um, when she went to high school, she went to the same high school I did. And it was my job to kind of be her tutor on the side. In addition to, you know, studying my own stuff, I was like her tutor because 
she couldn't really hear anything that was going on in class. And at that time, they didn't have a special person to come and help the deaf person. The deaf people were just on their own. So that complicated everything. My father's alcoholism progressively got worse as I got older. By the time he was, uh, I think I was about 10 years old when they told my father, if you don't quit drinking, you're going you're gonna to die because you're, you have diabetes. And uh, of course, tell an alcoholic to stop drinking, that doesn't quite work. And so my, what my mother did is she, she would beat my father when he was drunk. And I think she was trying to beat the alcoholism out of him. She thought if she, if she beat him up bad enough, he would, he would be so remorseful he wouldn't drink the next day. So I watched a lot of physical beatings when my mother beat my father. And I had a therapist tell me once, you know, to watch a beating is worse than to get a beating. And I, of course, would try to get between my mother and my father to um, protect my dad because I thought if she kills my dad, he'll be dead and then she'll have to go to prison and who's going to take care of us. So I was trying to do a dance to keep everybody alive. It was, it was difficult to say the least. Um, when I graduated from high school, I knew I was going to college, not because anybody suggested it, but I knew that I needed to get an education. So I went to college, I got a scholarship, borrowed the money, went to college. And um, after my freshman year of college, I went to Chicago. I was uh, born in Southern Illinois. I went to Chicago and um, boy, that was the first time I got out of Southern Illinois. That was an awakening. It's like Chicago is really different than Southern Illinois. Oh my gosh, I loved it. I had three boyfriends and I was dating all three of them. And when the summer ended, I said, okay, I'm going back to college, goodbye. Told all three of them goodbye. I went back to college and two of them followed me down there and still tried to court me. And um, so one of them, he just wouldn't give up. This guy was like really a charmer. And uh, I said, okay, I'll go with you. So. He was in college. He eventually flunked out of St. Louis University because he wasn't a student. He was kind of a party guy. And so when he uh, flunked out of St. Louis University, he got drafted. Uh, this was back during the days of Vietnam. That's how old I am, Vietnam era. So um, he got drafted and he went into the military. So I finished my second year of school. I got an associate degree, I was a legal secretary, I went to work, and he was in training, you know, Fort Ord, California, Fort Benning, Georgia, all this training program. And so two years later, uh, he insisted we get married. I said, why don't we wait? I know you're going to Vietnam. Why don't we wait till you get back from Vietnam? No, honey, I want, I want to consummate our love before you before I go to war. Well, back in those days, some of us were virgins. Hard to believe, but yeah, some of us were virgins, especially if you grew up Catholic. So um, we got married. <laughs> and you know, I wanna talk about this authority figures. Um, man, I've had some really dramatic things happen because I listened to authority figures. The first authority figure I listened to was my mother. The second one I listened to was the priest. 
at my parish. And then uh, when I, before I got married, I went to a, an OBGYN doctor in St. Louis. And I said, I'm getting married and my periods are, have been regular all my life. So I want to know, you know, what I can do. I don't want to have a baby right away. My husband's going to Vietnam. And he did all kinds of tests. I mean, a lot of tests. And he said, you can't get pregnant. You have something and you need to have major surgery. I said, okay, well, I'll do that when my husband gets back from Vietnam. So we get married. He comes home for the weekend. We get married. We go back to Fort Benning, Georgia. He's in training. He's gone like 12 hours a day. I'm sitting in this little apartment trying to figure out what to do with myself. They wouldn't hire me because they knew we wouldn't be there very long. I couldn't get a job. So the next thing you know, my husband said, I think you should get a pregnancy test. I think you're pregnant. And I said, don't be ridiculous. The authority figure, the doctor, the OBGYN said I could not get pregnant. Well, back in those days, you had to take the test, give a sample of urine. It took three days <laughs> for them to tell you yes or no. So three days later, I, I remember calling and they said the test was positive. And I thought, this is not what I signed up for. My husband was happy. He was so thrilled. I was pregnant. He was going to Vietnam. Well, to make a, a long story short, he was there two months and he was killed in action. So most of my life has been based on that foundation of abandonment and loss of love. And my whole life has been a cycle of love and loss and abandonment and love and loss and abandonment and love and loss and abandonment. Either I abandon them or they abandon me. Time after time after time, both in love and in work. So that's kind of been the myth of my life. Um, my mother told me when my husband died, don't cry. You have to be strong. You've got a baby, you have to eat, you have to sleep, you have to create your future, you have to be strong. All right, I know how to be strong, I can be strong because you certainly showed me how to be strong, I'll be strong like you. So I became kind of like an armored Amazon. You know, if you can imagine an armored Amazon, this is how I went through life. You know, like I had all this armor on me, and don't mess with me, are you gonna be in trouble? So I did that. Um, I went back to college under the GI Bill because I only had two years of college so I could get his GI Bill. So I went back to college, uh, got a, a degree in education. I became a teacher. Uh, I finally moved from Southern, I, oh, when my husband went to Vietnam, he said, I think you should go back and live with your parents in Southern Illinois. I'm like, really? Okay, so I went back into the family home. By then, my father wasn't drinking anymore. He was blind and very disabled. So he wasn't drinking anymore. He was just really quiet guy. And those are some good times I had with my father. He really enjoyed being around my baby. When I had my baby, it was a girl. And my father loved my baby girl. He, uh, he really... Um, I got love from my father through his love for my baby girl, kind of an indirect way that he, uh, he let me know that I finally did something right. <laughs> I had a baby and he loved the baby. Um, so, you know, 
I I was going to go back to college, so I told my mom and dad I were, I was moving out. I was going to go back to college, and right before I moved out, my father died suddenly of a stroke. Boom! One day he had a stroke; the next day he was dead. So my brother said, "I think you should take mom to live with you when you go back to college." So I did what my brothers told me to do. I was a good little soldier. Whatever the authority figures told me to do, I would do it. Okay. Okay, older brothers, I'll take mom, I'll take care of her. So mom moves with me. My mother and my daughter got enmeshed and I went to school and became more like my daughter's sister than her mother. This is all the dysfunction in my, um, in my home. A lot of it, a lot of enmeshment between the women in my home. You know, we weren't, I can't say we were close. We were connected like a, I don't know, like a, an entwined rope, like an umbilical cord that's all twisted around me and my mother and my daughter. It was a mess. It's, it's still very messy. I mean, I've done my best to kind of, I did my best to cut the umbilical cord from my mother. When I graduated from college, I said, I'm moving to Chicago and I'm going by myself with my daughter. And my mother was really upset with me. I did not want to take her with me. So I went to Chicago, I taught there for a couple of years, and then I, I did a geographic cure. Because when things would get unsettled in my life, I would just move. So I had nothing to tie me down, so I moved to Denver. I bought a home in Denver. I spent 15 years in Denver. And then my life got chaotic again. I did another geographic and I came to California. I was in California a couple of years when I suffered a severe depressive episode. I was suicidal. I didn't know what was wrong with me, but what happened was I quit a job and I ended a romantic relationship both at the same time. And I just plummeted into this uh, deep, dark hole. And so I would call my daughter who by now was 22 years old and say, um, I'd call her at work and say, today's the day I'm gonna kill myself. If you can imagine getting that call. And later, I got into therapy and I told my therapist that. And she said, be grateful you had someone to call. She was your life rat. You were trying to save your life. You know, I've made a lot of amends to my daughter, so much so that she said, I don't want to hear any more amends, mom. Don't tell me any more amends. Okay, so now when I want to say I'm sorry, I write her a letter and I read it. But I don't even read it to her because she doesn't want to hear any more of it. So I, I got over that depression. I, I finally went to therapy and I got into my first 12-step group. That was about 30 years ago. So one of my addictions was taking over my life and I was going to kill myself. So I got into a 12-step group for, um, actually, it was issues around food. I was 200 pounds and I couldn't stop eating. So that was my introduction to 12-step groups. And I worked the steps hard in that group. Um, I really worked the steps hard. And, and I went from one 12-step group to another, to another, to another. And so I've spent the last 30 years trying to fix, fix everything that's broken about me. But I never went to ACA until three years ago because it was kind of like I was cleaning house. You know, if my life was a house. I was cleaning all these rooms in the house, you know, the love addiction, the food addiction, the cigarettes, the alcohol, 
the overworking, the underworking, the under-earning, you know, the uh, compulsive spending. I was cleaning all these rooms out, doing all these 12 steps groups, but ACA was like the stuff in the basement. And I wasn't gonna go in that basement. There's, it was dark and muddy and icky in that basement. And so what was in that basement was my inner child. She was held hostage in the basement <clears throat> while I was pushing her away and pushing her away and pushing her away because she was so needy. My inner child was so needy. She would show up in my dreams and I would just go, oh, who is this feral child that keeps showing up in my dreams? Who is this? I've talked to my therapist about it and I don't remember my therapist specifically telling me it was my inner child, but I think I figured it out. You know, I was beginning a new career. I wrote a book about my grief. And so I was a published author and I started speaking and um, I was moving up in the ranks as a uh, speaker and I had a nightmare and it was the feral child who was in my nightmare. And I was getting ready to give a talk and she comes out and she's up in the rafters of this old building and she pushes this big trunk over on me and it lands on me and I just shatter into a million pieces. And then I wake up and I go, what was that? My heart is racing and pounding. So my inner child would speak to me through nightmares. And um, I want to tell you now what led me to ACA. Um, so I was in a 12-step program uh, and I heard this woman speak and it was around money. Um, and she did such a great job speaking. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, would you be my sponsor? And she kind of hum hawed around and said, no, no, not really. I've got enough sponsees. And then I happened to tell her this, this recent nightmare that I had. I, we went out to coffee after the meeting and I said, you know, I had this nightmare and it just frightened me. So the new nightmare was I would wake up and I would be in this landscape where all these buildings would be demolished and there was no one around. I was the only person on the landscape. So I didn't recognize the landscape. I didn't know where everybody was. I didn't know where I was. I was completely lost. And my heart would be pounding and I would just think, oh my God, thank God that's a dream. Well, that was the abandonment dream. That was what abandonment feels like to me. And it showed up, you know, this dream came up out of the basement up into the top of the house and said, hey. So I was telling this woman about the dream and she said, uh, I think you should go to an ACA meeting. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, that, that's an ACA dream. She had been in ACA 10 years. So I went to ACA and I mean, I heard the laundry list and I thought, this makes me sick to my stomach. Do not tell me I've been in recovery 30 years and I still have all these symptoms. No. I mean, literally, this, these symptoms, this laundry list was hard to take after 30 years handling all these other addictions, but not doing the, the core issues. So I went back to her and I said, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. And she said, well, if you want to do it, I'll be your sponsor. <laughs> I said, okay, God, I get it. You really want me to do this. So I go to this meeting in person 
in Sebastopol and we would do non-dominant handwriting. And every time I went, my, um, you know, my, my inner child would write with a non-dominant hand and she would draw stick people and she was one of them and she'd have a big smile on her face and, and she would say, I'm so happy you're here. Please don't leave this time. She was like talking to me directly, like, please stay here with me this time. Well, little did I know what I was gonna have to endure by staying with her. I'd have, I was gonna have to feel all her pain. Oh my God. And so that's what it's been like. Um, you know, I've learned a lot from being in ACA, from hearing people speak, from listening to their shares, from hearing that it's my job to, to grow an inner loving, nurturing parent. So most of the meetings I go to now are developing an inner parent, a loving inner parent, and uh, spending time with and talking to my inner children. Um, and, I, and I'm really growing by leaps and bounds, but this is the hardest work I've ever done. I mean, I've done most of the steps in all the programs. This is hard work, but you know what? It's giving the results. It's giving me the ability to sit and be with myself. I could not do that before. I was constantly looking for approval. I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the myth of Sisyphus, but it's about this guy who's being punished for something. And his job is to push this big rock up the hill. And then when it gets to the top of the hill, they roll it down and he has to go start at the bottom and push it up again. So my whole life has been about pushing a rock up a hill. And the minute I get up there and I think, okay, I'm done. No, the rock goes down to the bottom. So <laughs> I'm at the bottom of the hill with a big rock. And this is the ACA program. Um, let me talk a little bit about the, um, the laundry list traits. Um, I was really afraid to be alone. So I, I became an overworker. I, um, I was always chasing the right man. If I could just find the right man, everything would work out. I didn't have any idea that had anything to do with me, even though I was in all these 12-step programs. I thought, you know, if I do all these 12-step programs, I'll be able to get a boyfriend. I'll find the right perfect man for me. So, you know, that was one feeble, that was one more feeble attempt I did. <laughs> um, I started ACA in June and in December, I started dating a guy. And my sponsor says, you know, I don't think you should uh, do this. I said, well, this guy, I've known him four years. We're good friends. You know, let me just do it and see what happens. So well, you can imagine what happened when you don't have any recovery in ACA and you're trying to date, uh-oh, it was not good. And again, I look back on that and I see myself trying so hard to accept the unacceptable behavior, you know, cause he said to me, you know, if I, if I do something that upsets you, just tell me. And I, you know, he said, my wife never told me what I did that upset her. So I want to know what upsets you. So I would tell him, he'd say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to try to stop doing that. Well, good luck. <laughs> um, he just got tired of hearing what was wrong with him and how it wasn't working for me. And I got tired of trying to change him. 
So we said our goodbyes and I had to learn that lesson again. You know, the, the solution is not over there uh, in some man, with some man. The solution is with my inner children, loving them and bringing them into my awareness and taking care of them. Um, I didn't marry an alcoholic. I dated, uh, you know, trait number four. I, I uh, dated a few alcoholics, but I knew enough about alcoholism not to marry them. Um, and those were the ones that, you know, I didn't stay with. Um, and, you know, my daughter, at some point, she uh, she grew up, got married. She has two daughters now. And um, she finally told me at some point, Mom, you're such a victim. She was the first one to tell me I was a victim. I didn't like hearing that. And I thought, yeah, I'm a victim, right? Your father died two months before you were born, and I'm the victim. You're right. I am a victim. I'm a victim of war. I'm a victim of the military. I'm a, I'm a, a victim. And she said, yeah, but you wear it like a, a label. You wear it like a badge. Victim, give me a medal. I'm a victim. Oh, boy, it took me a long time to figure that out. So now I've learned to speak up for myself. Something happens. I can't, I'm not going to do that anymore. That behavior I will not do anymore. I learned to speak up instead of being at the victim of everybody around me. Uh, I've had authority figures as uh, employers. I've taken jobs where I had to work 60 hours a week, so stressful, it led me to a severe depression and I quit that job. So I have always looked outside myself for value and I've always used uh, production. If I could be productive, then I would be valuable. My, my value is connected to production. So even to this day, it's really hard for me to spend a day not producing anything. Like today, it was really hot all day. I didn't, I didn't do too much. Well, okay, here's what, here's what not too much looks like. At seven o'clock, I'm at the swimming pool swimming, come home, eat my breakfast. At eight o'clock, I'm going for a a bike ride for an hour, come home, <laughs> do my laundry, uh, get my laundry done, and then I say, oh my God, the day's only half over. What am I gonna do for the rest of the day? I'm not speaking till tonight. And I think, well, why don't you read a book? I'm like, okay, I guess we'll have to read a book because it's too hot to go outside. So I read a book and I, and I thought at the end of the day, it's a good thing I'm speaking tonight because at least I'll feel like I'm getting something done. <laughs> and I have to laugh because this is what the critical parent says, you know? You gotta do more, you gotta do it better, you gotta do it faster and get busy. My uh, sister-in-law tells me stories of how uh, when I was a little girl, she had married my brother and they would come visit for the weekend. And she said on the weekend, your mother would get you up at the crack of dawn and you would have to get up and help her butcher chickens. And your sister was left to sleep late uh, and get up whenever she wanted to. So I was Cinderella, getting up to help my mother butcher chickens at daylight. When my father's alcoholism got so bad that he couldn't work anymore, he had a retail grocery store and uh, customers would come in and he'd be sitting in the back of the store passed out so he couldn't wait on them. 
so we had to sell the store and my dad became disabled and my mother put me to work with a paper route. Uh, by then all my brothers were gone. So I was a little girl delivering papers before school in the morning and after school. Now that's a victim. <laughs> that's a victim of childhood abuse. Uh, and when I got in high school, I said, mom, I'm in high school. I'm never going to get a boyfriend as long as I'm a paper girl. Would you get some little boy to deliver these papers? I'm, a, I'm trying to get a boyfriend. <laughs> and so she hired a couple of boys to um, deliver the papers. And then I, I didn't have to uh, be a paper girl anymore. And I did get a boyfriend. It didn't last long, but I got a boyfriend. Uh, what else? We get guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves. Yep. Every time I ask for something I need, there's a lot of guilt. My mother used to say to me, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? One time um, when I got into 12-step recovery for food, I, I got down to a size six and I walked out in this really cute dress and a size six and my mother was morbidly obese. And she just said to me, who do you think you are prancing around in your little dress? It's like, what kind of mother says that to her daughter? You know, my, my mother never wanted me to be bigger, bolder, brighter than she was. I could never cross that threshold. And when I, lost the weight, when I became a published author, when I started doing public speaking, and when I was on television, my mother said to me one day, I never thought I'd have a daughter that wrote a book and that was on television. I didn't say anything. She didn't say, I'm proud of you. But all that, all that stuff was an attempt to get love and appreciation from somebody, preferably my mother, but anybody would do, you know, just give me a few claps, tell me how great I am, tell me my worth is based on, you know, my false self, because when I came in here and I found out that this whole person that I am is false, that is pretty scary. Well, who's the real me? Uh, I have yet to discover that. I hope I live long enough to discover it. Uh, I certainly feel a lot like the false self is in the forefront. And, you know, the real self is hidden down in the basement still. And from time to time, I go down there and I hold her hand. And I say, okay, sweetheart, come upstairs. I'm going to sit with you. I'm not going to leave you this time. Tell me what happened. And, you know, I did that on Memorial Day. I, uh, I went down the basement and I recovered the young widow that I was. And boy, this young widow spoke to me. It was quite cathartic. And uh, my sponsor was available that day. So I called my sponsor and I said, listen, can you listen to this? And the widow's voice just came out and said, I was so afraid. I was so alone. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to die. I mean, just on and on and on. And I just had to put my hands on my chest and, you know, talk to my sponsor. I had earbuds in so my sponsor could hear me. And I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And then I wasn't done. And then I had to call a fellow traveler and do, do a little bit more with her. 
I just, I needed to have a witness to the widow that was speaking because it was Memorial Day weekend. That was the weekend I buried my husband. My husband died on Mother's Day weekend. I was seven months pregnant. We buried him on Memorial Day weekend, the day dedicated to dead veterans. My life feels like it's been a movie, a tragic movie. So, um, you know what I'm grateful for? I'm grateful for all you guys that are here with me because I don't have to do this alone. Um, I worked the steps in the yellow book with a small group and I talked to my sponsor about how to be a loving parent and I go to loving parent meetings. Um, the thing that I'm really weak on is, is reaching out to each one of you individually and making outreach calls. I'm so afraid of rejection. Um, and I feel so vulnerable. So that's my next spurt of growth is to make more outreach calls to people and you know, be friends with people. I wanted to do the trait workbook with the same group that did the 12 step yellow book, but they didn't wanna do it. So my sponsor said, don't do the traits yet. Wait to do the traits. Just work on developing your inner parent and finding your inner children. And you know, when I went to my first 12 step retreat, it was a weekend retreat in uh, 2012. It was here in Northern California. And I didn't know much about ACA. I thought, well, I need to get out of town. So I'm just going to go this 12-step retreat. And everybody there had their little stuffed animals. And they were all sitting around holding them. And I was just so judgmental. I didn't know what they were doing with these stuffed animals. I thought, what are these, a bunch of children? What are they doing? Yeah, I was so judgmental. And uh, so I thought, I can't join this group, man. Uh, they're going backwards instead of forwards. This was my thinking. They're going backwards instead of forward. Little did I know that, you know, this many years later, I'd be shopping for a stuffed animal that looks like my inner child. And I found one. Oh, my God. And recently I was in a, a store and I saw this card and I bought this card for a friend because she had just published her first book. And I wanted to give her a little card. So I'm going to share this card with you because when I got the card home, I thought, I'm not giving this card to her. This card is for my inner child. <laughs> so I'm going to share the card with you. I don't know if you can see it. I'll show you the first page. Can you see it? Okay, so the, the front of the card said, you have a powerful voice. And then inside the card, it says, listening to what you have to say always puts me in a hopeful place. You show me how change can happen. When you face the world with pride, confidence, and a voice that can't be silenced, keep speaking up. The world is listening. So this is the card I got from my inner child recently. And I have it on my dining room table. And I realized that the inner children come to me as I'm willing to be with their pain. And I don't have to push them away anymore because I, I really still have a lot of hope and faith that you know the remaining years I have in, in my life will be different. Very different because I had the courage to come here and do this. So I'm done. I, Tired of talking, I'd like to hear some of your shares now. Thank you so much for listening and being my witness.
Good job. Thanks, Pauline. Thank you, Pauline. Oh, thank, thank you, you so Pauline. much for your story. Thank you. Thank you, Pauline, so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pauline.